Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. Uh, Ukraine World is a website in English about Ukraine, which is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest and biggest Ukrainian media NGO. We continue our series about Ukrainian culture and its deep links with the European, with the global culture. This series uh, is supported by the EU delegation to Ukraine. And I'm very happy to have here Olesa Ostrovska, who is director of Nestetsky Arsenal, Art Arsenal, one of the biggest and the most fantastic Ukrainian culture institutions. Good, good afternoon, Olesa. Good afternoon. Happy to be with you. Thank you so much for being with me. So we decided to talk about uh, different aspects of Ukrainian culture to make it more understandable for the global audience, in particular through the lenses of these anti-colonial, anti-imperialist uh, topics. But let's start with your institution, Mstetsky Arsenal. We are now here in a wonderful uh, building in the Kiev downtown. But its history is remarkable because it is basically uh, on the location of the former monastery, uh, the Baroque monastery. Then it was the arms deposit, the weapons deposit. Therefore, it is called Arsenal. And after Ukraine's independence, it, it became a art institution. And it seems to us, many of us, like 10 years ago, that this transition from religion to war and then to culture and art is a natural transition from the archaic times to modernity. But now the war has come back, has come back to Ukraine for eight years. And now with this full-scale invasion, it is, it is there among, among us. How is it for you as a, as a director of the art institution to perceive this war, to understand this war? Well, first of all, it's, well, I'm really happy to have you here in the art arsenal itself. Even a month ago, it was much more um, complicated, to say um, the least. And the, let me tell you a few words about art arsenal itself. Uh, why, um, why is that a remarkable institution, I think? Uh, as you've described, it used to be a part the arsenal itself was built as a part of actually Russian military presence in old Kiev. It was a part of a Russian fortress um, in Kiev downtown, with uh, which contained Russian horizon, with the aim to control the city, and it was one of the attempts of. Uh, Russian westernization, westernization of Russian um, empire, you know, going west. Uh, the building was built at the end of 18th century, the beginning of 19th century. It's huge. It's many, many uh, thousands square meters. And it was used uh, all the time since its foundation until approximately 2005, as a military object. So it's, uh, it became an art institution very recently. Um, and as a military object, uh, it was, again, always used as this reminder that there is a larger imperial power and imperial presence uh, here in the very heart of uh, Kiev, and it was also, which is remarkable as well, it was a secret obje object for a very long time. Uh, until 2005, it, it belonged to the Ministry of Defense. Uh, 
and um, there was no uh, entering to the zone. As a result, it was actually very rich. Uh, it richly preserved architectural, uh, excuse me, archaeological uh, heritage of this part of the city. So we learned a lot during excavations about uh, Kiev and its life for the past few um, centuries. But then, with Ukrainian independence, there was this illusion uh, by the end of the 90s that uh, wars are in the past, uh, that um, imperialism is in the past, and Russia is post-imperialist. So there is no point to have large uh, war uh, factories in the heart of Kiev. And it was uh, transformed to a cultural institution. Which there was a, it was actually one of the favorite projects of President Yushchenko, who himself was a very interesting figure in the, um, that period of uh, history. And this pretty much embodies this you know, illusion of peace that really blossomed at that time, that uh, wars are in the past and the future is uh, totally different, um, w which we saw was very misleading later on, because uh, as we know from uh, Putin's writings, uh, today's political Russia sees the war as the, as the future. It's the imperialism, colonialism, and worship which is proposed as the uh, new way for the world. So basically Russia is denying that the process of decolonization of the 20th century uh, had a sense, had a meaning. I think we will come back to it, but one thing that, uh, that strikes me about this place, l let us tell to, to our listeners that we are just in front of the Lavra, which is uh, one of the oldest monasteries in this part of the world, uh, Orthodox monasteries coming from the medieval times. But why, the, our listeners can pose a question, why Russian Empire needed a fortress here and needed a, a arsenal? Because Kiev was a frontier city. Because exactly. b before the divisions of Poland, Kiev was a, a, a city on the frontier of the Russian Empire of the 18th century. After the divisions of Poland, when uh, all the uh, right bank Ukraine was incorporated into the Russian Empire. Kyiv ceased to be uh, a frontier city. It, it became a city of Polish culture, by the way, very interesting, then Ukrainian culture. And now when we see about Russian plans to create this Novorossia, to divide Ukraine by half on the Dnipro, we're basically coming to the, this surrealistic idea of Russia to make Kyiv again a frontier city. That's correct. That's, uh, I very much agree to this uh, vision. And uh, what, what's even more notorious is that, uh, as you've said, Arsenal is in front of Kiev Pachalska Lavra. And at the moment when Arsenal was being built, uh, Lavra was a, a very important heart of Kiev intellectualism. So uh, you had um, f scholars actually creating the whole intellectual discourse, but for this um, part of Russian Empire, Hetmanshina, uh, or Ukraine as we call it today, uh, and also for uh, St. Petersburg and Moscow and, um, you know, the whole... Even the for whole Middle Empire. East, for the, we know that Bibles who were printed here was all sent to Damascus, for example. 
Right. So uh, that was it was an important center to be uh, controlled. Therefore, you needed a fortress here um, as well. So that's the whole complicated and complex um, and complex um, history. Um, and you said something um, very interesting, I think, about the um, the uh, fact that Russia denies European colonialism, or it's not a fact, I think, um, of the twenty uh, of European decolonization through the twentieth century. I think it's um, a bit more complicated. Russia the, uh, welcomes European decolonization uh, through the twentieth century and totally denies decolonization as applied to itself. So uh, it would gladly support the colonial discourses on the global south, for example, instrumentalizing them pretty much for their own imperial needs and continue be an imperial power at the same time. That's a wonderful Russian hypocrisy, right? So uh, to say that Russia is an empire, it is, all, it is perceived globally very often as a nation state, but it is an empire. We know its history, it, the very history of Russian statehood became from the idea that they should take over the Byzantine Empire, the, the symbolically. This is the idea of the Third Rome, etc. Then it was transformed into the idea of Russian Empire. But really, I think their message to the world is that look at what, what you've done, the Europeans. You, you've done lots of bad things in your colonialism. But you were stupid enough to just to let these colonies go away. And uh, we are uh, intelligent enough not to let them go away. But at the same time, we show that we are kind of colony of the West and we are trying to decolonize ourselves from the West and support all these former colonies of the West in this fight against the Western imperialism. Is that what, you, what, what they are saying? Uh, I think it's very, very complex and it's very hard. To, there, there are many uh, plots within plot lines within um, this whole um, discourse. Um, I have a, also a feeling that there is this gaze, this, this, this Russian idea that West, the West, the collective West, especially Western Europe, that's, let's, uh, let's stay there, uh, uh, has no moral right to kind of point to Russian colonialism exactly because of West Europe's own colonial uh, past. So that builds a kind of protection shield um, around um, Russian imperialism. Um, and therefore, um, Ukrainians or Belarusians, for that matter, or Moldovans should not be listened to. Because exactly, they are trying to um, dissolve in a way this protection um, shield. That's complicated, and I think it needs a lot of. I hope for for um, much deeper um, analysis in the future from the part of philosophers and uh, theoreticians of culture, anthropologists, and historians. And I guess we are at the po point when we uh, all uh, of us as a community will have to start this work. I have two questions in this regard. The first is to to the Western intellectuals, European intellectuals, American intellectuals, who think about anti-imperialism, who think about Orientalism, who are in this line of thinking, for maybe of Edward Said and culture and imperialism, all this stuff. Do you think they consider Russia in these terms and think that 
those concepts, just concepts, fair concepts, which were applied by this scholarship towards, for example, the Western culture, European culture, as Said was applying to the French culture, British culture of the 19th century, showing how they constructed this image of the East, colonial East. Do you think they understand the Westernness, that the same concepts should be applied to Russia, as we Ukrainians say? And the second question, do Russians, are there, are there any voices in Russia who are able and capable to do this job? Well, um, I think there is more and more uh, clear vision about Russian imperialism um, now. It was unimaginable some five years ago to speak about Russia in imperial, uh, imperialist terms. Um, while it is uh, quite acceptable um, now, I think many things have been revealed through practice, through actual uh, actions uh, taken by political Russia, um, or by actions that were not taken by Russia, for example, by Russian um, intellectuals, which we will talk about a little bit later, I guess. Um, and um, there is one... Uh, one of the reasons, I guess, is that um, it's, uh, Russian imperialism is different from Western European imperialism. So it's quite hard to recognize it. Uh, if in, um, in the Western European um, countries or um, in their experience, um, colonial, uh, colonies um, are mostly uh, overseas. Uh, so it's it's far somewhere far away. Well, in um, in Russian case, it's uh, bordering nations, very close by, uh, close uh, because they are close geographically. So therefore, they are also close um, uh, culturally. As a result, you uh, it's it's very hard to distinguish where uh, where those. Um, how those things happen. And also there is, I think there is one more very complicated um, feature of this um, imperialism. It's connected to the fact that Russian imperialism, an empire was uh, intellectually produced in Kiev as well. Um, and it was proposed by um, Kiev uh, clerics who, uh, who proposed the idea of Orthodox Empire in uh, more or less the beginning of 18th century. And I think at that moment, when this idea was brought up, this Orthodox Empire, where identity uh, is based on the religion, was already archaic at the moment of its anticipation. Uh, and this archaic idea is being, um, there, there is this uh, you know, attempt to um, to realize it, even though it's being uh, already kind of um, incoherent, so and um, irrelevant for the society, especially for Ukrainian society, which was at the same time at the beginning of the 19th century, there was a strong um, national uh, movement already taking place, connected to Cossack, Bodan Khmelnytsky, and. Uh, Cossack Wars and all that uh, story. So imagine uh, how this archaic idea was being de uh, was developing through a few um, centuries and was absolutely contra, contra 
the development of the society, at least at this part of uh, this Orthodox um, Orthodox um, Empire. So the fact that it was created or proposed uh, by cave intellectuals uh, and then imposed on Ukrainians is very confusing to someone working in the field of colonial uh, studies. It's, it's very um, ambiguous. So it's, I think it's time to start um, actually analyzing it, and those should be Ukrainian uh, scholars rather, just because they, uh, they have a very nuanced vision of what has been happening. That's a fantastic topic. I like it very much. I think it's understudied in Ukraine as well, because we are kind of shy enough to say that many things that happened in Russia were influenced by Ukrainians, including those things from which Ukrainians suffered afterwards. So you mentioned these uh, Kiev intellectuals of the 18th, early 18th century. You, you mean uh, Teofan Prokopovich, Stefan Yavorskin, and others. My hypothesis is that Theophan Prokopovich, he studied in Rome, then he studied in Halle in Germany. He was accepting the Protestant ideas of the supremacy of a monarch over religion. He brought this idea to Russia because he thought that it is the best uh, thing to kind of modernize society, to, to get rid of some archaic uh, religious influences. What we had in, 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 as a result, Russia, which destroys the autonomy of the church, in which the church is absolutely subjugated to the, to the Tsar, and which produces even more authoritarian state. So, so the idea that seek more freedom produced more authoritarian state. The same we can say about 19th century, when Ukrainian intellectuals were, and Polish intellectuals were bringing to Russia this idea of people, folk, Narod, etc., which was used by Russian authoritarianism to kind of build this far-right Russian nationalism, which is which are now we are suffering from. Do you agree with these twists? I, I very much agree with 19th century, but speaking about Prokopovich, I rather see it um, in terms of corporate conflict. Well, you had, uh, at the moment, at the time, a period of Prokopovich, you had a few social forces. Those were aristocracy, then clerics, then Cossacks. Aristocracy, I mean the old Ruthenian coming from the uh, from uh, Kievan Rus uh, time. Um, and uh, they had different interests. Was something which was in the interest of Orthodox clergy was not necessarily in the interest of Cossack, um, uh, Cossack upper class. And uh, Prokopovich, in my f feeling of view, was uh, proposing an idea of um, Orthodox empire which would strengthen uh, also the cooperation of Orthodox uh, clergy. Uh, in contrast to Catholic clergy, which was very strong in Kiev at uh, that time. So there was this aspect of uh, corporate um, you know, tension as well, which uh, formed or, or paved the way for, uh, for what came uh, next. 
However, I have to confess that I'm not a, a historian. So these are uh, basically mm, thoughts and ideas connected to the place where we are. Because uh, Art Arsenal is exactly about what has been happening uh, with uh, Kiev, uh, the idea of Kiev, uh, with Kiev clergy, with this part of the city and how it's influenced the whole situation. You said it was uh, a part of the monastery first, then it became Russian fortress, then it became um, Ukrainian cultural um, site. And this cultural site, our mission is pretty much to analyze, to reflect upon the past, because we are uh, also a museum, so we, contain, we keep a collection, and our collection uh, is composed of three parts. One is contemporary art, uh, the, un uh, the other one is avant-garde art of 20th century, and then there is also uh, object objects uh, uh, which we acquired by way of excavations of this part of the city. So it's historical, archaeological um, objects telling the story. And that forms pretty much the way our programs uh, are um, developed and the type of institution uh, of institution we are coming coming to this question it's a very interesting question how you combine this archaeology archaic things and then avant-garde and then contemporary art do you think there are some light motifs of ukrainian ukrainian art some some topics that are repeating and coming back because for me one of the light motifs is that there is no conflict between tradition and modernity. There is an attempt to always to bring tradition and modernity together. If we look at Ukrainian avant-garde of early 20th century, we can, we can find this. If we look at some Ukrainian contemporary painters, for example, I look how uh, Alexander Oidvort, one of the prominent Ukrainian painters, unfortunately, who passed away uh, uh, some time ago, how he plays with these traditional topics, the Jewish traditional topics, Ukrainian traditional topics. Do you have this impression? Mm, I wouldn't say so. Um, I don't have this exactly um, impression about Ukrainian culture. I think it was, um, if, you, if you look at 20th century, uh, at, at the, the 20s, and um, 20s of 20th century are an extremely, extremely important uh, period for Ukrainian culture. Actually, uh, our period now is the only period of Ukrainian culture in 100 years that can be paired to the 20s of the 20th um, century. So, uh, of course, there were many, uh, many um, artworks that would somehow reflect or drive on um, ethnic motifs. Um, and you had avant-garde avant artists working with, uh, with uh, the whole uh, factories producing, for example, embroidery. So they were embroidering avant-garde um, pictures. Uh, doing something very modern through traditional um, means. But on the other hand, um, I wouldn't say that it was sub subjugated to this, um, you know, ethnic cultural uh, vision, rather. It was more like using it to, um, to somehow um, enrich what, uh, what, uh, because Ukrainian culture of the beginning of 20th century was a natural part of uh, 
European landscape. There were many interconnection, interconnections artists uh, studied um, abroad often. They, uh, there were also many interconnections with the Russian uh, art uh, scene. And um, it wasn't, um, you know, this um, somehow um, iso uh, isolationist type of uh, of uh, working with with um, with art. It was rather using uh, tradition also as um, as uh, as a certain means, artistic means. But that's precisely what I'm what I'm thinking because. In Europe, we often see, I think after the Second World War especially, we see the trend to this idea of revolution, aesthetic revolution. Everybody was trying to, to make some revolution in abstract art and in some other things. So it was kind of a juxtaposition of modernity versus tradition. Whereas in Ukrainian tradition, literature especially, maybe in visual arts, if we look at the, at the 20s, if we think about Malevich, if we think about Narbut, Bohomazov, and others, we see this uh, statement that no, 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 there is no no contradiction between deep past and you know in, uh, in and the future and the present. Well, I'm not sure about this. Okay. I think this speculation goes a little bit too deep. <laughs> okay, but I will I will I will try to go deep uh, in this speculation a little bit later. <laughs> Because I really, I really cherish this idea. I think it's one of the peculiarities of the Ukrainian culture, and we see it right now also in music. How Ukrainian musicians are using the ethno motifs, etc. I would agree with the music and with with the contemporary music. Um, this is something which, to me, resembles uh, the history of blues, uh, where you had something very peculiar. Uh, transform, transformed into modern forms in music, but why is that? Um, why is that so um, so present on Ukrainian uh, music scene? Um, I'm not sure at the moment. Maybe it, it's connected to the need to be distinctive, um, especially uh, you know on the to be distinctive uh, as a as a kind of post-Soviet experience where everything had to be harmonized. Uh, we are, uh, of course, the uh, we um, inherited the social realist um, type of attitude towards any creativity where things had to be harmonized in a way. Uh, and um, being uh, the need to be distinctive is uh, connected to this extensive usage of, um, of ethnic uh, music. Of, uh, uh, it was not like that at the beginning of 20th century. The experience was different at that time. And if you look at what was the, what was really capturing imagination of artists at that time, that was uh, futurism was one of the most important uh, movements artistic movements on Ukrainian cultural scene. And it was the city, the uh, velocity, which was important, um, uh, being fast, being uh, industrialized, uh, being machine-like. That was uh, something that really captured imagination um, at that time. 
there was one phenomenon which uh, which uh, really worked with the uh, with the um, archaic forms, and that was the circle of Mikhailo Boychuk, and they were uh, developing this program uh, of painting which is related to medieval and uh, and uh, renaissance practices they were using same type type of paints they were uh, painting um, in a uh, in cert certain way um, they uh, were basically working with very large forms with frescoes but there is still a debate um, among ukrainian scholars whether boychukism and, and uh, boychuk circle is an was an avant-garde movement or not? But, I mean, you can really pose the question whether avant-garde, even European avant-garde, was all about future. Because uh, you can you can pose the question about, I mean, the archaic elements of pre-avant-garde painting, like Modigliani or Gauguin, etc., and how they were trying to go to the archaic forms, and how Ukrainian avant-garde with Malevich also were trying to go to the archaic forms and take these forms of futurism and then build, uh, and make, make a picture of Ukrainian peasants. Well, that's an interesting discussion, but let me come back to the contemporary art. If you look at Ukrainian contemporary art and culture, would you agree that in the, in the past decades it was increasingly globalized and Europeanized and uh, trying to, to, to find its, its entry into the European and global scene? Yes, I think so. Uh, there were there were um, a bit different processes. If you take, for example, literature and contemporary art, um, there were different uh, different centers of um, this um, entrance into global world, because Kiev and uh, Ukraine generally was uh, seen as periphery for a very long time. Uh, for the reasons that we described, that we discussed uh, earlier, so uh, artists and writers were seeking for um, alternative centers to enter the global scene, and uh, there were different trajectories. Artists chose Moscow uh, for a long time until the mid of two uh, thousands. Uh, writers always chose Poland. Uh, and the reason was very simple, uh, choice of language. In literature, you have to choose the language because this is your material. This is uh, something you work with. And if you choose Ukrainian language, Moscow is no-go. Uh, there is a very different, this, uh, there is a diff different scene, basically. Artists didn't have to choose the language. They, therefore, they could connect to Russian scene um, for a much longer uh, time. Uh, one of the most um, important Ukrainian uh, artistic phenomena of the end of eight, uh, 1980s, the beginning of uh, 90s, had double title, which is very telling, I guess. In Ukraine, we called it a new Ukrainian wave. In Russia, they called it Southern Russian wave which I think reflects reflects the... That's 19th century, this 
Uh, very imperial. Yeah. And if and we are talking about contemporary Rus, art. That, that's how Ukraine was called in the 19th century imperial literature, even by Ukrainians themselves. Even even okay. in, in Ukrainian writers were writing about Yuzhna Rus, not about Ukraine, the southern Rus. Uh, in accordance with that, I guess, the uh, phenomenon was called Yuzhna Ruskaya well, now Southern Russian Wave, which, uh, which is very interesting in, um, in, uh, if you look at the um, very essence of the, um, of the um, artistic phenomenon, because this is contemporary art, and contemporary art is supposed to be critical, self-critical, and self-reflective. And there you have a huge uh, imperial, imperial blind spot, right, on it. And I was, it was like that until um, the Orange Revolution, definitely. There was a change of generation, in a way, if you can uh, speak in generational terms, uh, connected to Orange Revolution. And the next uh, wave of artists was much more um, left-leaning, uh, much more um, um, less... They, they were working less with paintings, more with, uh, with uh, abstract forms such as uh, performance, uh, for example. And while the previous... Uh, the previous um, wave of um, of art was uh, connected to uh, paintings mostly, and those were very um, paintings that um, that um, uh, were very rich in colors and textures. Therefore, for Russian critics, it was, they were associated with sun and you know fruit and summer. And therefore, this this name. Well, the the next generation was very cold, uh, very conceptual, uh, and very socially um, oriented, and much more understandable for the international scene, because it corresponded it corresponded with the uh, with the at least West Euro European uh, artistic scene. And, uh, artists of, of that generation became quite a natural part of uh, the um, art scene, at least in Eastern Europe, for sure, and uh, also in Germany, Austria, and countries um, like that. Um, that was more or less the case until the um, uh, until the uh, revolution of dignity, 2014. Funny enough, all those uh, waves, at least as I describe them now, are somehow connected to uh, our revolutionary uh, movements. And after the uh, revolution of dignity and the Russian in uh, invasion of 2014, you don't have such a, a coherent artistic uh, phenomena or a, a clear, uh, clear cohort of artists uh, working uh, on the same platform, more or less. There is uh, uh, the, um, the uh, much wider, the, um, the circle of phenomena, I guess, is, is uh, much wider, or maybe we are still in the middle of it and we cannot describe it yet. If you look at contemporary Ukrainian art and culture, do you see some maybe embryonic trends or maybe they have developed trends 
how you how Ukrainian culture can really enrich the European and global cultures. How what are the phenomenon, topics, approaches which are, you know, really maybe trendsetting. Well, I think. Uh Honestly, I don't think this question is even um, even needs an answer. Of course, every every culture is uh, enriching the the um, the international uh, phenomena, international scene, because it's, uh, it gives you a different uh, uh, gaze, a different perspective um, on things. Uh, Ukrainian cultural scene is is interesting, is really blossoming. That that's why I said that this is the first time since the twenties of the twentieth century when uh, Ukrainian culture is really well um, developed. But I think we should also mention why why it's uh, why it's the case, and the case is that uh, almost entire Ukrainian art scene of the twenties was um, demolished. People were simply physically executed. Uh, of, let's say, 2,250 uh, writers, to more than 200 were physically executed. And uh, artists were executed, artworks were often destroyed uh, physically, again, or hidden. Some uh, artworks, um, we still have them because they were hidden by, uh, by some people. Um, and this, um, this uh, actually this um, experience of loss is a very important cultural experience of Ukrainians. Because there was a huge loss of the 30s where you lose the whole scene and artworks. Then there was World War II. And it's again, it was, uh, there was the period when um, Ukrainian culture lost museum collections as well, because they were evacuated. They either, some of them were evacuated, let's say, to Russia and never returned. Some were um, uh, captured by uh, Germans. Something was returned. So it's, um, there, but there was a lot of museum object loss. Then, uh, after World War II, you had social uh, social realism uh, tightly imposed, which con which was really control mean for any creativity, and artists could not really um, create freely. So it was a softer loss, but it's a loss again, loss again. And this sense of loss is uh, probably one of the uh, most distinctive uh, of Ukrainian cultural experience of the past 100 years. And it was the primary experience all the way up to now, or, or, or up to 1901. And after 1991, there was suddenly very modest and then uh, more and more brought this feeling of building again, and uh, until now, uh, the, this is uh, this uh, the, the the past few years were probably the most fruitful on Ukrainian cultural scene, and uh, now Russian invasion, this full-scale invasion that we are living through right now, um, actually returns us to the old pattern of loss. 
And it's uh, extremely hard for Ukrainian creators to reflect that and to and not to fall into the same old trap of loss. I think this is a fantastic observation. And this comes me, uh, leads myself to another abstract observation, which you probably disagree with, uh, uh, and, and truly so, rightly so. You know, Western European culture, uh, I think it was so much obsessed with this accumulation of artworks that suddenly uh, you, we can explain Western avant-garde as a, as a, as a wish to reject it. Right? to reject this accumulation of culture. And the culture was building in the early 20th century as a kind of rejection of culture, you know, this very paradoxical way. In Ukraine, this feeling of loss is something very different. So this explains why we have this ethnic revival, because people are thirsty for, the, for this, right? So people really want to dig deep in, in, into their roots, and uh, this creates absolutely different attitude to the past, I think, uh, in a way that the past is seen as a, as a chance for the future and not as, a, as an uh, objection to the future. But let me now, uh, we are approaching the finish of our conversation, ask you ab about this experience, because the war experience, because we see Russians really targeting museums, and that's, that's absolutely horrible. We have seen the Museum of Ma Maria Primachenko destroyed, one of the fantastic, um, I would say, archetypical Ukrainian painters who really uh, gave us so, so many these primitive art forms or uh, initial or original art forms. Several days ago, we have seen the destruction of the Museum of Gregory Skovorada, which is our fantastic Baroque philosopher in Kharkiv Oblast. So are we again in this, in this really, in this um, sentiment of the loss? And uh, maybe this will be one of the topics of uh, Ukrainian culture in the decades to follow, not only on the loss of art, of, of course, but primarily of loss of lives, loss of hopes, loss of future. You know, uh, what I think what's important now, what might be different is that we are free to reflect on that. During the 20th century in Soviet time, it was uh, you, uh, it was not only the loss it was also a prohibition to reflect on its loss which deepened deepened the situation we are in the situation when we can reflect and this is exactly what we are doing right now you and me this is exactly what arsenal is doing uh, no matter what our team uh, is continuing its work uh, we are working both internationally we also start um, start working now or we hope to be able to start working now for a key audience because let me uh, make a small digression um, since the uh, Russian invasion in February 2022 a mission of every cultural institution uh, of Ukraine uh, changed a little bit and it's very uniform uh, through the whole range of institutions there are two things that institutions are doing it's preserving preserving tangible and intangible and the second one is getting ukrainian voice out on the international scene and this is what we've been doing as an institution as well these these two things but now uh, for the past few 
weeks as Kiev is slowly getting back to life, which is very fragile and can change at any second at all to to previous condition. Uh, but as Kiev is slowly in a very fragile fashion coming back to life, we understand that we have to be, let me be a bit melodramatic, that we have to be with our people, with our people in Kiev, offering them um, some cultural experience which might not be so um, such a complicated nuanced uh, you know intellectual experience but rather experience of being together experience of hope a little bit um, experience of um, warmth and uh, safety um, as much as it's possible under these uh, circumstances. So it's our third goal, anyway. And I think it's the same for uh, many institutions um, in um, in uh, many cities. Uh, that when it comes to your question, whether we will uh, we will get into this mode of losing again, I think the uh, antidote for that is exactly the work of cultural institutions right now, even under given uh, circumstances. Thank you. Thank you. This is very important. And thank you for all your work. We had Olesa Ostrovska, uh, the director of Kiev Mustetsky Arsenal, Art Arsenal, wonderful Ukrainian intellectual and art manager. And this was Explaining Ukraine podcast. Uh, uh, let me remind you that this is a series about uh, Ukrainian culture and its links with the global and European culture. This series is brought to you by Internews Ukraine with support of EU delegation to Ukraine. You can also support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Ukraine World. My name is Vladimir Yermolenko. I'm chief editor of uh, UkraineWorld.org. Stay with us and stay with us.